Welcome to the ICS with Gabe podcast. We're here. We talk about industrial cybersecurity, the latest happenings in the field, and cybersecurity as a whole. I'll also be providing you some tips and some learning resources for getting into this particular flavor of cybersecurity. So again, sit back and welcome to the ICS with Gabe podcast. Welcome back to ICS Gabe. Uh, this is episode four. We are on the fourth episode going down in the history of ICS podcast. So I just thank you for tuning in and just sticking with with me during this time. Uh, it's COVID-19. So hopefully this can provide you with some listening, um, some things that can be educational for you as you're going through your COVID-19 experiences. So I just thank you again for attending and listening in on episode four and kind of how I start off every podcast is to pretty much talk about what's been going on new with me. Um, I wouldn't say so much new, but this has pretty much been going on. Um, I've been getting into a couple of different publications, um, been currently reading through for a, for a customer and just for my, my own learning. It's a book called Applied Incident Response by a Steve Anson. It's a Wiley publication. And a little bit of it, I'm looking at the um, table of contents. It gets into some subject as it concerns incident response, can kind of get into some of the technical details of it. I mean, some of it is like threat landscape, incident readiness, but even getting down to remote triaging and tools and network security monitoring and dis imaging and memory analysis and, you know, all that fun incident response and digital forensics and incident response type of conversation. So been kind of jumping into that a little bit in preparation for some customer um, ask and even helping with some of our services at my organization. But even looking at, I picked up a book at the ICS um, summit that happened back in Orlando right before the um, COVID-19 uh, happened when everybody had to go on lockdown. But I picked up a book by a, a gentleman named Andrew Ginter. Um, he actually has his own podcast. It's called the Industrial Cybersecurity Podcast. It's really great. It actually was one of the motivations for me starting my own podcast um, because I because he has such great topics and great interviews during that podcast. And again, just Google Andrew Ginter, um, uh, Industrial Cybersecurity Podcast. Great information. And um, so the book that I'm looking at his of his that I picked up at the conference was the Secure Operations Technology. So just start starting in that one. So I'll have more to report on that one during probably our next podcast or so. But also, let's see what else has been going on with me. Um, oh, I oh I participated in the SANS uh, digital or virtual conference. The ICS conference uh, it was led out by the SANS instructors for the industrial control system and also Drago. So it was a very good. So they had a capture the flag one day and then the next day it was um, a virtual conference, which went over all types of industrial control system type of conversation. But the CTF was very fun. I mean, the fact that it was on a Thursday was a little bit of a bummer because I had to kind of switch between work and the capture the flag and then by the time it was um, the time limit ran out when the capture the flag ended, I was pretty much spent between the two. But it was a lot of fun going going through a lot of very um, it went from kind of common to more advanced methods of of um, looking at industrial control system cybersecurity. They were given a it was a scenario cyberville or something like like that. But they even gave you packet captures and information to really be able to dig deep down inside and really find out the answers to the particular questions. So that is going to be coming up pretty soon as it concerns the answers and the capture the flag is going to be released publicly. So um, if you're listening to this, you can just Google SANS, um, industrial security, cybersecurity, um, capture the flag. Information might might be out now. I haven't checked, checked lately, but it was a really good capture the flag. And the conference was really good too, of course. Um, Rob Lee always puts out very good information and the SANS instructors, very good information. I mean, any IT security subject, but with an ICS flair to it is, is pretty much the best way that I can um, speak of that. But all of the conference were rec was recorded. So you can even listen to the conference on uh, back 
on the um, back recordings. So, yeah, absolutely. So just, you know, jump into Google, Sans ICS, uh, Andrew Ginter, Financial Control System Podcast. All the information is out there. So it's kind of what I've been involved with. But uh, let's see what else. Oh, I was also selected to be a part of the advisory board for the ICS, um, for the Sands ICS Oil and Gas Summit that's happening in October. So I was selected to be a part of the advisory board where we're able to look at different speeches or different talks and be able to approve. And also I can speak at it too. So, you know, that's really nice as it concerns because before I was a part of the um, Sands Summit back in Orlando and now uh, being part of the advisory board. So I think that's a nice little up uptick. So, you know, I'm very happy about that and be involved with the organization. Always great trainings, always great events. So that those are some of the things that have been happening with me. Um, but now on to the podcast, right? You want to get to the juicy stuff. You want to get to the information. Um, so this time, as I promised in the third episode, we will be doing an interview. An interview. And this interview is with a gentleman. His name is Zohar Rosenberg. If you haven't heard of him, I don't know where you've been, but uh, his name is Zohar Rosenberg, and he is the chief security officer at Elrond, which is a leading Israeli holding company dedicated to building technology um, and very much so investing in startup organizations. Um, right now, he is the acting member um, of the board for a number of cybersecurity companies and as a member at RDC which is the commercialization arm of the Raphael uh, Advanced Defense Systems in full partnership with Elron Electric Industries. Uh, Zohar, given more information about him, he served in the 8200 division for over 20 years, leading high-risk, high-innovation organizations and projects with a track record in cultivating new technological initiatives as well as brilliant and skilled personnel. So he develops, he's developed people over his career. Zohar was involved in the establishment of the National Cyber Bureau and the formalization of the Israeli National Cyber Strategy. Um, he retired after serving as the head of IDF's cyber department. And among other achievements, Zohar was responsible for developing nationwide cyber educational programs and working with the Israeli, Israeli Office of Education and Philanthropy Organizations to help place Israel as a global leader in cyber technology. I mean, even with that information, there's even more. Zohar, educationally-wise, or educationally, he uh, has a Bachelor's of Science in Electrical Engineering and an MBA, both from Tel Aviv University, and he also holds the 2008 Israeli Highest Defense Award. So without further ado, we're going to jump in and segue into the interview that I did uh, with Zohar Rosenberg. I hope that you guys enjoy the interview. Hello, Zohar Rosenberg, and welcome to ICS with with Gabe. And it's really good. It's really good having you. Hi, Gabe. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure being here. Indeed, indeed. Um, as the founder of the Israeli uh, Cyber Bureau and the former head of Israel's Cyber Defense Organization, um, I really am happy to have you on here and really pick your brain as it concerns cybersecurity in 2020. Um, I know that a lot of people who listen to my podcast are early career cybersecurity practitioners or maybe even career trans transitioners. And I wanted to kind of start off the conversation with talking about some of your background and how you got into cybersecurity. And I noticed that you started off in electrical engineering as it concerns what you studied in your undergraduate. Speak to me about electrical engineering and your transition into cyber and tell me a little bit about that particular journey. And I might have some additional questions to follow up. So what did that look like when you were getting into cybersecurity coming from electrical engineering? Sure. So um, I think it's important to remember that, uh, you know, when I went to do my first uh, degree, it was uh, mid 90s. Um, and uh, there wasn't really an internet yet, especially not, you know, um, vast deployed around the world and with everyone having access. There was hardly any um, computer networks anywhere. Most computers were standalones. Uh, it, it was a very different world than what we know today. And in those days, um, I think that 
it was still a world very much dominated by engineering. And, and it was, so for me, as, as someone who was always uh, interested in, in, in science and very curious and then one, it was clear to me that um, I will be somewhere on the uh, science side of things. So for me to, to uh, go and, and study engineering was, was very natural. I have to say, I'm, I'm very happy that, that I did that because I think uh, studying engineering um, did, at least for me, a few things, but, and, and I know from many others that it, it's similar uh, to most of them. So the first thing is that engineering sort of uh, rewires your brain on how to think methodologically, methodolo methodologically uh, logic, how to look at the problem in a very uh, methodic way. The second thing is you understand, you really understand the, what a system is. And I think that's a very big differentiator from many other um, degrees, aspects, and, and even from, as you said, cybersecurity uh, practitioners, um, and also those who graduate from computer science, for example. In engineering, really from the first semester, you, you learn to look at a system, to analyze a system, and then to take it into parts. You start with the, the very common um, um, noun of a black box. So there, there is a system, you, you don't know how it's built, but you learn how to analyze it from observing its input and output and then the correlation between them. And only after you uh, understand that, you start going in and go to the white box and, and start to disassemble things and, and then go back up. So the whole um, understanding of a system, I think that is something that, for me at least, was um, one of the biggest benefits I, I could have gained from my uh, education. And I think it's something that helped me throughout my career, of course, also in cybersecurity. So just as I, as I said, to go back and, you know, when I studied, studied cybersecurity, there wasn't cyber, there was hardly information security. Um, sort of different times, and um, I also worked as an engineer, you know, I did um, DSPs, uh, programmable logics, um, boards, everything for a few years, and, and then around the end of the 90s, um, I started feeling that, you know, um, even though engineering is amazing, and still it is, um, and it helps you really understand a lot of how the world around you works. But it seemed to me that the glory days of engineering are, are in the past already. It's not that there is no, nothing to, uh, to do. It's not that there, is, there isn't anything else to, um, for, there's no room for innovation, but, but the glory days are, are a bit behind us. And I wanted to be part of something that its glory days are still ahead. And around, as I said, 99, 2000, I, I saw that really the, the internet sort of started kicking in. Computers were getting to be connected into networks. Um, you, you could see the, the very early days of what we now call cyber attacks. And it seemed to me uh, you know, a great and amazing new world. And as I said, I wanted to be part of something that its glory days are in the head and something that I can be a, a real influencer on, on how it's going to be built and to be there from the very first moment. So sort of feeling like the first engineers in the you know, early um, 19th century or early 20th century, I guess they had um, a completely different environment and and, uh, and feeling of what it was to be an engineer than an engineer today in 2020. So for me, it was about that, why, why I made a transition. I felt that in engineering, it's great, but I, I, I won't get to be a strong influencer. I, I, I didn't feel that the glory days are ahead, that it's just going to be improvements, um, breaking more um, performance barriers, making things more efficient, but, but it felt for me that this is not enough for me to, to, to satisfy my curiosity and to keep me running for years ahead. Um, 
And when I looked at the, again, the very early days of, of cyber, it, it felt to me that that's an, potentially an amazing opportunity and I want to be there from the beginning. So I made that transition back then. Absolutely. And it's, and it's so interesting uh, how your experience is so similar even to my own. Um, I actually came out of college around 2012, graduating with a Bachelor's of Science in Electrical Engineering. And just that same idea that the glory days of engineering are more behind us. I mean, you see a lot of these roles as quality engineers or process engineers or project engineers, which aren't really the innovators of any type of technology. I mean, Ohm's law hasn't changed. Uh, yep. P equals IV, right? Like you're not getting anything brand new, um, at, at least from those who are first entering into the realm of electrical engineering. So I definitely can um, can um, get with that whole idea that, hey, the glory days are more behind us, or at least I'm not going to be a part of that process anytime soon. So I definitely can see that. So going from ones and zeros, electrical impulses, serial communications in electrical engineering to cybersecurity, what was, what, how did you learn or what was your learning I guess, trans transition. How did you start to go from ones and zeros, electrical engineering to TCP IP packets, uh, going from that to just, as you mentioned, systems for security, or even with that digital signal processing that you mentioned, how did you get to those TCP IP OSI layer networking and cybersecurity? So it, actually, it was much easier than I than I had anticipated it would be. Um, and again, I think a big part of it is is the experience already in how to learn new things and also how to observe things. So you know, TCP/IP is just another protocol. You have protocols in um, in engineering where you look at I don't know if you look at the early days of uh, cellular communications or whatever. Um, so there, there are protocols everywhere. So once you understand what a protocol is, what are the basic building blocks of a protocol and how to read and understand a protocol, then it doesn't really matter which one you, you are looking at. And so that, for me at least, it was fairly easy to start looking into those things. And I, I started looking into, uh, you know, TCP IP is the easy part, but things like um, MIME for email and... Um, you know, all the email protocols and the internet protocols, HTTP, those were the, maybe a little more complicated things to grasp at the beginning because they follow a different type of rationalism than regular engineerical sort of protocols. But again, I think the, my ability to look at a system and, and then try to uh, disassemble it into parts and, and, and understand how the different parts are uh, working together, what are the relations between them and how each of them affects the whole system. So for me, it was fairly easy to, uh, to get into things quite fast and understand. Um, so I don't know, it just uh, sort of on-job training, uh, so to say. Absolutely, absolutely. And definitely within the military, right? You guys are seeing things firsthand right? As the founder of the, or one of the founders of the Israel Cyber Bureau, you guys were seeing the newest and the freshest or the first hand, um, I guess, first line of defense as it concerns cyber. And back then, just as you mentioned, it was very early in the communication or cybersecurity in general, that particular field and sector. Um, now, for people to get into cybersecurity, they have all types of tools like Wireshark and Kali Linux operating system and uh, TCP dump and all these different tools, command line and GUI type of tools. So it can be a lot easier to be able to look at the information and learn. Back then, when you were getting into cybersecurity, were you guys making tools on the fly? Were you all developing things as you saw them for analysis and uh, detection? What was that like? Uh, were you all just like tool makers in the shed, making things to help you be better at cybersecurity? So definitely. I have to say that even back then, um, you could find uh, open source tools here and there. 
the access was, was much more difficult. Finding them was much more difficult than it is today, of course. You couldn't find any online courses like you have today. But, you, but there were at least, again, pieces or building blocks of open source that we, whenever we can find, we would base on that. But above that, definitely, we, we built uh, many different tools that we needed uh, to take us each time another step ahead. So, yeah, a lot of things we did were, were sort of first time. Some of the capabilities we developed. Um, I, as far as I know, we were the first ones to, to ever develop such capabilities, which again was, was an amazing experience. Um, the, the, the curiosity and the satisfaction once you get something like that working um, are, are quite, um, you know, extraordinary. So it, it, it was really uh, great back then. And a lot of those... I think today, for 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 some, it's it's a little getting to be more of the same, and yeah, everything is already out there, ordered in libraries of, of open source and and online courses and, and stuff like that. So you don't have to invent things all over again. Absolutely. And then going from starting in cybersecurity, right, that transition to developing in cybersecurity and developing newer tools and techniques, looking at open source, going from that engineer type of perspective to being a leader, a founder in cybersecurity. What was that trans transition like? What? How did you go from, you know, practicing to leading teams of individuals in order to help with cybersecurity defenses? Just describe that in a couple of sentences or so. Yes, I I think the, again the the basic motivation is is subjective. It's personal. For me, I I felt that uh, you know I I've had my time with bits and bytes and 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 code and it wasn't enough for me anymore. I I was looking for something more, and I I found the more strategic areas, the the leadership areas, much more uh, interesting and and areas that I could see myself develop new um, capabilities and new sort of muscles for myself. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, um, at least for me, I, I want to constantly feel that I'm developing, that I'm doing things that I haven't done before, that I'm learning new things. So I felt that this was the right um, passage for me to go to a more strategic things and, and leadership. And uh, it turned out that I that I had the right skills and capabilities uh, within me to to do that successfully. So I just moved on and on to more strategic things. I uh, started with really uh, you know ma managing a sort of uh, you know um, research center in in cybersecurity. So there, of course, it's about research methodologies and it all the way to. Um, profiling the right researchers. How do you even find the right research to be able to accomplish what you want them to do? Um, it's about building teams and building groups and, and uh, processes and KPIs and things like that. And afterwards, I went more to, okay, how does what we do here connect with things people do in other places, in other units, in other organizations? How can we elaborate more? How can we collaborate? How can we uh, make one plus one equals three or even four? Mm -hmm. And from there on, I went to, okay, um, going back to uh, the, the systems sort of approach and, and going into more sort of cyber defense. How do you build a defense for a big organization or for a nation? Um, it, it's You can be an amazing hacker with amazing capabilities, it doesn't mean you know how to build a real defense. Absolutely. That's that's completely different. So it's again going to more strategic thinking. It's being able to see things from the bits and bytes all the way to the people that are using things and to organizational culture and a lot of other things and, and understand the system um, with all its dimensions. Some of them are completely technological, some are more psychological, some are, again, organizational. How do you understand that system and 
because before you understand the system, it's very difficult to, de to design the right defense. So step-by-step step just went to more and more strategic uh, things. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for that. And that's, I mean, absolutely fascinating. I mean, again, just going into your background and looking at all the experiences that you previously had um, or have, I mean, it's, 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 it's so cool getting your firsthand uh, uh, description of what all that was like. So kind of even a point that you just previously brought up as it concerns the psychological aspects of cybersecurity or even the different trends in building defenses, um, a lot of that really starts with knowing your enemy, right? A lot of military organizations will understand that you're, knowing your enemy is one of your greatest um, um, defenses, right? Knowing what your enemy is going to do. And just as this yeah. podcast is called ICS with Gabe, looking at industrial control systems and critical infrastructure. Within the last, I mean, I would say five to eight years or so, critical infrastructure seems to have been something that's been on the minds of hackers and cyber criminals more and more and more. And it's just gained so much more momentum as it concerns an interesting, I guess, or more a publicized uh, uh, version of what hackers are after. Um, but working in the military, I'm sure that you've seen that way more often than what the common cybersecurity professional has seen. The, cyber, the current cybersecurity professional has seen it more within a five to eight years, but I'm sure you've seen this over a number of years. I mean, even towards the point that kind of a small example, the, the uh, Israel Water Supply Authority was previously hit this past Friday and Saturday. Um, but you've always seen this stuff, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, from your perspective. What are some of your thoughts and ideas as it concerns cyber criminals going after critical infrastructure like nuclear plants and oil and gas facilities and wastewater facilities? What are some of your thoughts about that? Sure. So I think it's important to remember that um, cyber attacks usually come from um, one of two major motivations. There are others, but they're more niche. So the first motivation is strategic. It, it is mostly between um, nations or at least um, big entities that have strategic goals. And, and the cyber um, is just another tool in their toolbox to reach their strategic goals. And I think the earlier years of um, cyber events around critical infrastructure were more um, the result of strategic uh, initiatives um, and less cyber crime. The second motivation is, of course, cyber crime, which is usually about making money. That's that's why you go to crime. Um, and as time goes by, things are more connected, systems are more open, and the ability to get a high return, so to say, on a cyber attack on a critical infrastructure. That, so that option is becoming uh, much better because, again, you go five years ago and, 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 and beyond, uh, most critical infrastructure wasn't directly connected to the Internet. Um, most of the systems were very, very closed with dedicated protocols, non-standard. Non so it's not that it's impossible to attack that. Everything can be attacked, but you would have to um, put in a lot more energy uh, and effort into making a successful cyber attack because you really need to understand that system and that protocol, and it's difficult to find uh, how to learn about it and where to see it if it's, you know, for example, uh, a dedicated Siemens protocol for a specific PLC. You need to put in a lot of effort to get the uh, documentation of that protocol, for example, or to get a PLC and reverse it. It's, it's a lot of effort. And it's not sure that you will be able to get a high enough return on that effort. Uh, when you go to the other extreme, for example, so you know today to issue a ransomware attack, it's a few cents and you can get back thousands of dollars. So the return is almost infinite. Um, so crime goes to where the, uh, the, the probability is high, the return is good, um, and the lower the effort, better. I think in recent years, since we're going, you know, we're not there, but it's an ongoing trend to those 
industry 4.0 and everyone wants to be able to remotely control everything and to remotely monitor everything and we're going we're already deep in the iot uh, space so things are much more connected to the internet with newer types of apis and and open sort of uh, communication so it's it's just much easier to target those things today than it was some years ago um, i think that's a strong dif difference that makes a lot more cyber crime turn against those uh, critical infrastructures um, and, and then just another thing is that Still today, a lot of the uh, critical infrastructure are sort of traditional entities. And just uh, mentioned, uh, you know, water facilities here in Israel. It's not the, you know, the cutting edge type of organizations here. It's not the high tech sector. They don't have strong cybersecurity teams. They don't even have a CISO most of the times. So they're also an easier target in that aspect because nobody there really knows what they're doing. Uh, the awareness is not that great. They don't have all those layers of cybersecurity uh, in place. So they're an easier target. Absolutely. And I'm so I'm getting, so I got three major things from what you just just said, which were absolutely awesome. Is the, is the increase in connected critical infrastructure systems. Just as you said before, if you're looking at a Siemens PLC, you would have to get that protocol, look at the documentation, reverse engineer it, understanding how it's connected. Where now, I mean, you have Modbus TCP that's talking directly to the internet or, or DMP3, which is typically used within electrical utility organization. Absolutely. So increased attack surface for these attackers is one thing I heard you say. Another thing I heard, I heard you say was, um, that the lack of sophistication or I guess speed of a lot of these critical infrastructure organizations with adapting to those IT uh, network speeds, right? You have uh, IT environments are moving way faster than the that of critical infrastructure. And the last thing I heard you say, which I think that is a resounding yes, is that hackers are lazy. They are looking for the easiest path to their goal. Those are the three things that I definitely heard you say as it concerns the ideology of attackers and the um, focus on critical infrastructure. It's just easier to get to now, for sure. Yeah, yeah, super, super correct. Um, you, you know, people go to where it's easy to get easy money. Um, why, why work hard if you can work for, with less effort and get the same result? Absolutely, absolutely. Makes a lot of sense. So, so kind of with the third point that I wanted to address, address with you is definitely your most recent article, which is entitled A Cyber Approach to Coronavirus Containment. And I want to talk about a couple of ideas there, because one thing that, that I thought was really interesting, and we talked a little bit on the back chat, as it concerns the idea of the hackers, but even amongst or within Corona, uh, COVID-19, um, there was a recent article put out um where bleeping uh, security spoke of certain ransomware hackers, right? And these, you no, know, 2019 was the year of ransomware um, going towards financial institutions, but even healthcare organizations. Um, so organizations like Maze or uh, Doppelpamer or Ryuk, um, there was some communications with these organizations and asking them, hey, will you continuously target these healthcare organizations amidst COVID-19? And some of the responses were, well, we never attack hospitals, orphanages, nursing homes, charitable foundations. Um, another one had said the International Health Organization con uh, conducts vaccine tests. We follow the news. If there is actual evidence of laboratory working on the vaccine, of course, we will give the key for free, meaning the ransomware key to decrypt information. And then I thought one was really interesting. It said, we also stop, we also stop all activity versus all kinds of medical organizations until the stabilization of the situation with the virus. And I thought this was super duper fascinating, right? And the whole idea of understanding your adversary. Is this adversaries who with a conscience, adversaries with morals? 
what are some of your thoughts thoughts there? Is this something that you've seen previous, or do you think that this is something that the world pandemic is bringing? It's bringing a conscience to to cyber criminals. What are your thoughts there? So I haven't seen anything like that before, and uh, probably the you know the effect of of a global epidemic uh, leaves its mark on everyone. Uh, we didn't have such a global crisis, um, you know, basically since, I guess, the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Um, because even the financial crises of, of 2000 and 2008, they were really financial, but now it's sort of an all-around type of crisis. It's not just financial. So I, I think that uh, it is an, uh, a unique event in, uh, you know, um, in latest uh, history, and so maybe it does uh, also affect some of the cyber crime criminals. Um, but I'm not sure those that are uh, suddenly have some sort of uh, ethics or moral uh, are representing enough. Mm-hmm. Healthcare uh, sector has been um, over for two, three years already. Uh, sometimes it's the first. Uh, sector being attacked sometimes the second one in, in, when you talk about volume of attacks so they're competing with the financial sector uh, head-to-head for, for a number of years now and even now uh, in covid times there are still um, phishing attacks on, on hospitals and, and other uh, healthcare institutions it, it's not that uh, it has completely stopped so maybe some develop the moral because of the situation but i don't think that is a representation of everyone. I, I, I still see a lot of attacks and I still see, you know, um, cyber criminals, if they were so moral. Um, so obviously over, over the, fast, the past few weeks, uh, phishing around the coronavirus is the number one phishing in the world. And there are tons and tons of phishing emails around coronavirus uh, hitting everyone. So, you know, if you're thinking about, uh, you know, a very frightened um elder or a very frightened mother that is uh, frightened for for her children at, at the beginning of this uh, crisis and she's trying to uh, look for information on the, on the web on, on what are the symptoms on or what can she do to maybe protect herself or her children better or her older parents better and and cyber criminals exploiting that and sending her fishing with uh, you know best five things to do to avoid being infected it's pure phishing, but but a lot of people will f- fall prey to that um, because they are all on the edge, uh, sort of uh, hysteric, frightened. It's it's very human. Mm-hmm. So I think overall, I, I I'm <laughs> I'm not impressed with uh, cyber criminals, um, you know, get, getting uh, themselves um, a higher morality. And I think that uh, the overall cyber crime is is just on the rise. During this crisis, indeed, and even kind of opening it up even a little bit more. And for those who are listening, please Google "a cyber approach to coronavirus containment" by Zohar Rosenberg, and you address some of this, right? One thing that I've heard you mention was as it concerns phishing attacks, uh, right, against organizations or this work from home thing. Um, and you give some very practical advice to organizations and to people um, as it concerns defending themselves against this. These new slew, this new slew of phishing attacks targeting scared and fearful individuals. Explain a couple of ideas that you mentioned there. I know that one was definitely phishing, but what are some other things that organizations and people can do to protect themselves from a practical perspective from these cyber criminals and these cyber attacks of today in the midst of COVID? Yeah, so I think a big part um, is that many people went to working from home, including myself. And when you're working from the home environment, it's it's important to understand that it's cyber-wise, it's a different environment than what you're used to because you're working on your home Wi-Fi with other devices connected on your home network that are not secured, not monitored, not anything. And so, you know... Um, my recommendation to organizations is to at least issue uh, a very short and simple set of guidance to their employees working from home. Like once you started working from home, 
it's a good start to change your Wi-Fi password. It's a good start to make sure that your laptop is at least, you know, patched and has some sort of an endpoint protection. It's a good thing to maybe um, disconnect other devices from the network once you're working on uh, organization resources from home. Like if you don't need your Alexa or smart, smart TV or whatever to be connected right now, so while you're working, disconnect them because it, it helps reduce the attack surface once you're online. So sort of, you know, uh, not a very long, but uh, a very practical and simple to uh, perform set of guidance, um, tips, advice that help people understand that because they're not working in the regular environment and the organization didn't have the time to really properly uh, be ready for something like that, each and every one of us can help uh, in, in reducing the attack surface and, and getting the risk a little lower. That includes, of course, all the, the phishing thing. In these times specifically, if you get an email from someone you don't know, you've never heard of before, don't open it. If it's really important, they'll send it or they'll call you or they'll text you or whatever. But if you don't know who it is, don't open it. Um, maybe not a good idea right now. Or make sure with your organization that maybe you have a secure way of looking at emails or that your email is being protected in 365 or something else. So just be more aware of, of what you do, even the small and trivial things that, that you do uh, because times are, are sort of not the same and, and the threat is not the same. So be more aware. Even sticking there on the subject of COVID-19, a lot of businesses are noticing that they have to change their business model um, from that of on-site and physical engagement with their services and environments to that of remote administration of cybersecurity services uh, as it concerns defense and even offense. Do you think that artificial intelligence and automation uh, advances in cybersecurity will be pushed more towards the forefront? Or what are some of your ideas and outlooks as it concerns technological innovations in this area of cybersecurity as a result of COVID-19? Just want to get some of your thoughts there. So I completely agree that there is a significant more room for innovation um, because of the changes caused by the COVID situation. Um, as we just discussed before, working from home is, is here to stay. Not everyone will stay working from home, but a lot more people will, will be working from home. And I think it will push organizations faster to the cloud uh, because when you're working remotely, it's just so much easier to do that when you're working with cloud resources than if you have to connect everyone back into the you know uh, data center at the basement. So I think cloud is gonna experience a strong push. Remote technologies are gonna experience remote push um, all the way to infrastructure because uh, I don't know if you read, but um, a lot of the world is experiencing bandwidth issues with the internet because how we use internet is, is suddenly completely different. And a lot of people don't have a very good sustainable bandwidth at their homes. Um, so that is also going to get a significant push, whether it's 5G or fiber to the home or whatever. And of course, every technology that gets a strong push ahead or every new technology also has its cybersecurity needs and derivatives. So I, I think cybersecurity will experience a significant increase in, in demand for the new architectures, approaches, and, and, and way people work. I think AI and automation are definitely part of it. I, I'm not sure that's the the, the major thing that will, will solve everything, but I think it will definitely be a big part of the solution. Again, we're looking at the example of many people working remotely and the day-to-day -day interaction with the IT suddenly becomes a little more friction, um, 
based and and you also want to monitor everyone much closer because they're they're home and so you know if before you had monitoring on the network inside the organization that sort of becomes irrelevant you need new type of monitoring but it's a um, dispersed monitoring because everyone is, is is in different locations and and you also need to monitor access and you want to monitor who's doing what where and when and and all those things when you're looking at a large scale remotely uh, probably won't happen without automation and, and, and AI it's it's impossible to do that uh, manually it, it's not that it was very um, easy to do that manually even when everyone is working from the office but but now it just takes a much stronger effect um, each and every one of us at home again with a different environment you want still visibility and policy enforcement and identity and everything uh, and you want to um, make sure that you're not taking on a higher risk than what you used to because otherwise you need to change a lot of other things. So I think automation and AI will be significant parts of the solutions, but the solution will start from how do I even enable each and every employee to access all the resources they need, even when working from home or any other place? Um, and how do I gain visibility into what they're doing? How do I enforce the right policy? How do I, by the way, um, solve the growing tension between privacy and the organization's needs? Because when I'm working from home and you want visibility into what I'm doing, then you're intrinsically going into privacy issues because it's my home. I'm doing other things from home and you're going to have some sort of visibility to that. Uh, so I think the the tension between privacy and, and work, which it's not new, but it's going to be very much intensified right now. And so again, I think automation and AI are going to be a um, significant part of, of being able to handle that on a large scale. I think that's the perfect segue into giving more information about the Elron Electronic Industries, where you sit as the chief security officer of the organization where you guys are actively involved in investing in startups and future technologies within cybersecurity and other industries. Could you give us an overview of what your organization does and the technologies that you invest in? Sure. So we are a Israeli VC based in uh, Tel Aviv. We're early stage investors. Um, and we have been investing in cybersecurity for the last five years. Everyone has been around for almost 60 years, it's basically the first VC in Israel um, responsible for uh, establishing some of the biggest high-tech companies in Israel today. Um, so five years ago, we started doing cybersecurity um, and, and we're making investments all the time. Um, we Even currently, we're looking at a number of companies and maybe close another new investment in the next two, three weeks. And we're trying to, you know, like everyone else probably, but uh, find the, what's the next um, niche or what's the next area that we should be investing in. Currently, we're looking at a lot of things around data security in the cloud. Uh, it's a very hot area. Um, we're looking at... Um, SaaS security because it's also it's a growing pain with organizations today having dozens to hundreds of SaaS applications and each one of them with its own security policy, security uh, dashboard and it's impossible to just uh, manage that one by one um, so it's a growing pain and a problem, so we're looking at that space. We are looking, by the way, at the uh, still at around the OT space, not necessarily critical infra infrastructure, but OT space. You have more and more, you know, uh, smart buildings where everything is connected from the elevator to the, to the HVAC to uh, whatever, and. And again, you're going now to um, companies that their purpose in life is to manage buildings. They have 
no idea what security is. They don't have a security team. They don't have a CISO, but everything is connected, really. Um, and, and so what's the right angle to solve that um, need? So these are, I think, some of the areas that we're looking at uh, at present. As you say that, it reminds me of the initial attack vector for the target breach, which was actually a business management system, right? For, I believe, a HVAC system or something yeah, for yeah. target. And then they transition to the point of sales terminals, which exist at every single store. So that BMS, that business management system attack vectors are so important mm -hmm. because um, a lot of organizations are noticing that they're on this flat network where the HVAC, the BMS systems are on the same network as those important and critical systems uh, within an organization. And I'm saying that for Target as an, as an enterprise, you know, there's, there's also a big IT part, so at least they have a security team. But you go to, a, again, a company that manages buildings today, there's no security team. They don't have a large IT. It's just that, the OT operation. And so it, I think it's a different angle of, of a problem which will require its own sort of uh, story on how to solve that. Well, with that said, I would like to thank you, Mr. Rosenberg, for coming to ICS with Gabe. I think we went over a breadth of information for those early career starters, all the way to those very experienced professionals. We're pretty much, we went over your story of starting off as an electrical engineer. Then you transitioned into cybersecurity through the military. We also got into a lot of the things that you're involved in now and even your thoughts as it concerns some of the ideas and ideology of the hackers today and even some investments uh, with uh, Elron organization that you're a part of where you sit as a CSO. Are there any other ideas or things that you want to leave with the viewers before we get out of here and uh, we kind of leave them, you want to leave them with any closing thoughts? Um... No, I think, we, as you said, we, we've gone through quite a long way uh, in, in just a little uh, short of an hour. So uh, I want to thank you very much. Uh, I had enjoyed it very much. And as well, I enjoyed it myself. And thank you for coming on, Mr. Rosenberg, for giving us some of your time and expertise. And thank you all for listening too, to ICS with Gabe. And probably we can do some type of part two going down the line as things progress in cybersecurity. But just as I always say, thank you again for attending and listening to ICS with Gabe.